Addiction is all about hiding. It's about having no feelings, being invisible. There is no hiding in running. I feel everything all the time. I get the chance, in fact, to be fully present, to feel the pain and suffering or just the illumination of sweating and being out there. I mean, that's a gift to be able to feel those things. So it couldn't be more the exact opposite. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Charlie Engel is a writer, runner, recovering addict, and speaker. He's run across the Sahara Desert, the Amazon, and is currently embarking on his audacious pursuit to run from the lowest point on the earth, the Dead Sea, to the tallest, the summit of Mount Everest. But Charlie says his greatest challenge is becoming sober. He stayed clean since 1992 and has channeled his addictive nature into his passion to run and what he calls positive purpose-driven pursuits. In 2016, he wrote a memoir titled The Running Man to illuminate the lessons he's learned in his struggles and his triumphs. Visit charlieingle.com to learn more. We'll get into this, but you know, the No Barriers podcast is really to understand how people live this No Barriers life in all shapes and sizes and expressions. And so you have a really fascinating story. And you know, this No Barriers life, it's not just all physical stuff, obviously there's what we call invisible barriers. So, uh, you know, I think like addiction and all the stuff that you struggled with and, and worked through are really great for our community. So. No, I appreciate that. And I mean, look, I think that the thing that you've done a brilliant job of in, in your life and that I like to emulate is, you know, sharing the struggle with people because everybody struggles, you know, and anybody who doesn't put that out there is, is, um, I don't know, they just want to look good or, or whatever, but I think we all relate to struggle way more than we relate to success. And so I feel like it's part of my job to, uh, to share that struggle with folks and bring them along on that journey. Cool. There's a lot of struggle in the world, you know, and, you know, like a physical disability, you have a prosthetic leg or an arm and blindness, you know, I use a cane, but you know, some of these invisible challenges in the brain are like even more traumatic, even more nuanced and complex. And so um, you've you've struggled a lot with that kind of invisible stuff. And and you're here on the podcast because you're doing some amazing things. You've sort of translated that uh, addiction to something really big and purposeful. 
And so you're a really great representation of this no barriers life. But start us out on that journey. You know, um, I, I uh, first of all, you got a big project coming up um, in 2020. Tell everybody about this crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, <clears throat> what you just said, too, I, I think that we all have a combination of like self-inflicted barriers <laughs> and some of the things that are just thrust upon us that, you know, we have no control over or responsibility in. But once that barrier is there, then it is our responsibility to figure out what to do about it. You know, I like to say that what happens to us is way less important than what we choose to do about it. And, you know, this project you're referring, I call it 5.8. And I'm actually going to go from... And it's a metaphor that you'll get right away. I'm going to go hey, from the lowest. It's funny because that's Jeff's height, by the way. So. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> wow, did you just have that in like your quiver somewhere? Oh, yeah, I had that ready. That's cute. Yeah. I just want to know if you could dribble with your left hand because then, then when we get together, I'll know which way to go and, and all that. So, you know. <laughs> well, but. it also, 5'8", is Eric has hair, five hair follicles on his left and five, <laughs> eight on the right. So. Since like we're... sort of like curly from the three stooges yeah. all right sorry Charlie. All right, go ahead no nah, man i love it so you know this project is um it goes from the it's actually on all seven continents i'm going to go from the lowest elevation land elevation on all seven continents to the highest elevation on each continent and the one you're referring to is actually the ultimate version of that which will actually be the last of the seven and that is from the dead sea where I will swim out into the Dead Sea and do a free dive to the deepest point I can reach, which might be 20 feet, but I'm going to go down there anyway. It's hard and diving in that Dead Sea. It, it is. It is. You have to, my wife says she's willing to give me lots of weights to hook onto me. And, yeah, and there's tons of salt down. that keep you floating, right? Yeah. So I'll come back up, hopefully, and swim back to shore, and then I'll run 2,000 miles across the Arabian Desert and... When I get to the tip of Oman, I will get in a kayak and paddle a thousand miles across the Indian Ocean. And when I reach Mumbai, India, get on a mountain bike and, and bike to the base camp of Everest. And from there, of course, attempt to make it to the top. And that's about 4,500 miles from end to end. But I call this project 5.8 because it's actually only 5.8 vertical miles from the lowest place to the highest point on the planet. And every person on the planet, including you two guys and me, all live within this little tiny 5.8 mile sliver of space that covers the planet, you know? And as I like to say, we're, we may not agree on everything, but we're all in this together, whether we like it or not. So, uh, and the metaphor, I think, again, as we were discussing earlier is, is very obvious, you know, we all, go through a lifelong roller coaster of low places and high points and that's kind of the human condition and the point is to never give up on that and to realize that you know there is another way forward always you just got to find it so how'd you become so, such an underachiever that's what i want to know <laughs> <laughs> genetics <laughs> so Charlie, I, I, I do I know you're sober and we want to talk about your uh, your your history leading up to sobriety. But when I hear that project, I can't help but think that it was somehow formulated sitting around a campfire swinging like whiskey or something. But I know that's not the case because I know you're sober. So 
where the hell did you come up with this? I mean, it, I see the metaphors and I see, you know, the connections, but this is a pretty audacious goal. So did you come up with it? And was it over the course of one day? Was you have like a dream about it or how did, how did it originate? Man, that's a great question. No, nobody's ever actually asked me that. And it, and it is a, it did, I know exact moment that it happened. And interestingly, we, it was at uh, the moment of a really supreme failure and that was in 2008. It's been this this idea has been, you know, floating around for that long. But in 2008, I attempted to set a new record for the fastest run across the U.S. And at that point, I needed to go about 70 miles a day for 45 consecutive days. And about 20 days into that, I fell apart completely. I had I had MRSA you know, a staph infection. I had like tendonitis all over my, I I was a disaster. And, you know, medically I actually had to quit Mm. and I got on a, I got on a bike and actually went the rest of the way across the country because I was meeting with a bunch of kids at special needs schools. And it was a perspective gatherer because, you know, I quit running and I got a chance to actually take the time to visit these kids at these schools. And it changed my whole perspective. And I, I realized at that point that this was a low point for me, just like sobriety, you know, sobriety being sober is a high point, but I can tell you the low points I've had since the day I got sober don't ever compare to the low points I had as an addict and that self-inflicted pain and suffering. So always keep that in mind. This stuff that I try to do now, it's all voluntary, man. I can't complain about this. And but the idea came, you know, sitting there with a bunch of kids who have special needs and they didn't they didn't choose their challenge. It was put upon them and they were doing their best. And I just said, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever literally gone from the lowest place to the highest point. And like all bad ideas, that's where it was hmm. born. <laughs> well, yeah, most ideas like that sit in the back of your brain and you never really express it, but you did. So, I mean, like how many times since you came up with the idea have you said oh shit what have i committed to (laughs) yeah way too many dead sea to everest is the one i wanted to do right that's the one that really really attracts me but i had to make a decision about six months ago because it's an expensive expedition and i'm not a wealthy guy and so i need sponsors and partners and i just everybody loves the idea but i wasn't getting the buy-in and so i i went back and i said okay look I always wanted to do all seven continents. So how about I start with Africa? And, you know, it's about the budget's about 10% of the budget for the big one. And as a proof of concept, we'll start there. And interestingly, I, I got 20 sponsors when I presented that project. And people have been so excited. And, and sometimes you have to take a step back and come up with an alternative way to get around or under or through the barrier. Yeah, but but I'm I'm really I get hung up on the idea though that that you know any potential sponsors are were fearful of your failure and didn't want to be associated with the with the highest of the highest level of your project as opposed to you know you kind of cutting it in half and starting with this and then you get a lot more buy-in. Do you, what do you attribute that to in the holdout from people going to the big one 
down to a more modest version? Yeah, it's a Jeff. It's a great question, and I mean, I will admit some serious frustration because I would get like such incredible enthusiasm, but when it came to writing that really big check, nobody wanted to be first. And and again, maybe I don't know. Some of some of it is the fact that I'm not a um, I'm a good athlete, but I'm but I'm I'm more average than I am amazing athlete, and I think I have an extra dose of determination that probably comes from the addict part of my personality. I'm, I'm really not, I tell people all the time, you know, you don't have to like, when you get sober, you don't have to ditch your addict. You, you have to find a way to channel that power into something good. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to be uh, too presumptuous here, but you guys have both accomplished a lot. And while you may not be addicts in the truest sense, there has to be some um, obsession. <laughs> I've watched you, Eric, especially in all the things you've done. Like, you know, there's got to be some obsession to keep going after that time and time again. And I don't think that successful people can be successful without a certain dose of that yeah. obsession. And somehow I just couldn't get sponsors bought in. And now I think people are afraid of audacious things. You know, they're yeah. afraid of that. But my friend Chris Morris, he, he always says, like, you got to sort of play this mental gymnastics game where you where you have to believe so hard that you're going to stand on top that that carries you through you know all those challenges and so good for you man making it happen you leave on monday that is so cool so you're you're making it real well you know and i so appreciate you saying that you know and and i i gave a talk recently that basically the theme was you know comfort is overrated and I, I don't understand this like pursuit of comfort. I, I don't know anyone, at least not in my world, that's ever gained anything, any knowledge, any lessons from the easy things in their life. But the, uh, you know, the thing is, it's, it's just, I think people are risk averse to such a degree, but I don't even know if it's risk averse, Eric. I think it's laziness to a lot of degree. I think I'll tell you one other, one other thing that I like to say, like, Misery really does love company and and there's the weirdest thing not everyone wants you to succeed. And I'm not talking about necessarily like the haters but I'll I'll do it in um in like sobriety uh terms. Like when I got sober, I had people come to me, some of my closest friends come to me and they're like, "Hey man, you know, you don't you don't have a problem. You just need to slow down some, you know, you need to just do this or that." And it was because they were terrified of me getting sober because guess what? They were going to have to take a look at their own lives and what they were doing with it and what they were accomplishing. And Puts a mirror on yourself. That's a hard look sometimes, huh? It is for sure. Now, you talked earlier about this idea because I find this super fascinating and I want to understand addiction a little bit better because... Like my brother, Mark, he was uh, alcoholic and, you know, he said like when he started drinking, it made him like the coolest guy in the room. Like he was shy. He was like sort of felt ordinary, maybe a little alienated and drinking just made him like the studliest, coolest, most handsome guy in the world. Uh, so how did your how do you think that addiction started in your life? Yeah, man, it's a good question. I mean, I think genetics, first of all, you know, I am a fourth generation addict and alcoholic. And, 
you know, I think that it's pretty hard to get away from genetics. But but then, of course, environment plays a role. And look, I had an 18-year-old mother when I was born, and it was the 60s, and she was in theater, and I was kind of surrounded by alcohol and and drugs. And I mean, my mom... <laughs> she passed a couple of years ago and I, I, she knows this. And uh, so it's not like I'm, I'm saying something bad about her, but you know, I would say I was lovingly neglected. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I was, you know, I was left to my own devices a lot. And, and about nine or 10 years old, you know, I started wandering through the parties and just, you know, finishing a half a beer, you know, here and there. And I, I liked that sort of, warm fuzzy feeling that I got from it you know I was I think I was lonely and I I found some connection in that and then then I went the other way Eric I mean in high school I was the I was the overachiever student body president and you know captain of the sports teams and made good grades and did all that and trying to get my father's attention which you know that's a whole nother subject but that that didn't really, you know, get me anywhere. And I, I went to college and, you know, and I got there and I thought I was going to be special, you know, all this amazing uh, resume I had. And I, I got to Carolina and there were 4,000 other freshmen <laughs> that had the exact same resume I had. <laughs> and it took me about a week to figure out that uh, while I wasn't exceptional at any of those things, I was an exceptional drinker. And that actually became my, you know, it sort of became my thing. I mean, I, I hung on for a couple of years with basketball and did some cool stuff. But, you know, the 80s were also the cocaine decade. And, you know, I really started diving into that lifestyle. And it took me about 12 years to get out of it from the time I was 17 to the time I was 29. You know, it was an everyday occurrence. You were pretty high functioning, right? Like you, it sounds like you've, even though you were balancing your addiction and 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 really not afraid to dive in really deep, you still were hard charging. You were entrepreneurial. You were holding down pretty high level jobs. Do you feel like because you were successful, it sort of gave you the fuel to keep going and and not pushing away your addiction, substance abuse? Yeah, totally. And I mean, look, my goal was to. My belief was that the the boss won't fire the top salesman, and that turned out not to be true, by the way. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, like I was a top Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years. You know, I sold five or six hundred cars a year, and in Monterey, California, and you know, my belief was that if I could balance my addictive behavior, and and I was a pain in the ass on on this side with high achieving on the other side, then I could get away with it and nobody was going to question it. But, you know, I went through this long series of, I had to move basically once every couple of years because I would, I would just screw it up and finally be shown the door and I needed to go somewhere and start over again. And, and I would do it all again. And, and I just, I tried everything to quit, man. You know, drink on weekends, don't drink liquor, don't do this, don't do that. And, somebody finally said to me, like, you do understand that normal people don't have to control their drinking. <laughs> they, they just actually, like I'm married to somebody who, 
you know, she'll leave half a glass of wine at dinner and I still look at her like she's an alien. I'm like, <laughs> I'm 27 years over and I still look at her like, how can you possibly leave alcohol on the table? I just, I don't understand. But, but why? Because you're, you're ashamed that she didn't finish it or because she, you're being tempted? Yeah, no, no, not at all. I'm being funny. I'm giving her a hard time. You know, my temptation <laughs> is uh, I feed that that animal with running and biking and climbing. And uh, and I do a lot of sobriety meetings still yeah. to this day. You know, I stay very connected to the recovery community. And, and, and that I think that's what it's about. And, and you guys, I know, say the same thing. You know, community is so important. You know, I'm a I'm a strong individual, or at least I think I am. But the places I am the strongest are the communities that I belong to, and in particular, the running community and the sober community. You know, and those people support me, and I'm not afraid to go out and say I had a terrible run today, or you know, the thought of drinking occurred to me today. I'll say that in a meeting and. You say it out loud so that somebody can come to you and say, hey, dude, you know, I understand how you're feeling and you don't have to do that. And that's all I need to hear. That's such a perfect, simple message. You know, this community, these two communities that probably some of them intersect, but, you know, you consciously chose to be a part of those communities and those lift you up, right? They support you. Yeah. People say all the time, oh, I quit drinking by myself. You know, I did it cold turkey on my own. And, and it's a weird badge of honor because I don't struggle today to not drink. I struggle today to not be an asshole. <laughs> you know, and, and if, I'm, if I'm left to my own devices, if I don't have an outlet for those, you know, crazy feelings that bubble up inside me, and if I don't have a place to put that or somebody to talk to that I trust... And sometimes that somebody is the whole community. I'll put it out to anybody on social media and say, you know what? This has been a rough day. Here's why it's been a rough day. Here's what I've done about it. And, you know, interestingly, those are the messages that I get the most response to. Mm -hmm. If I say, man, I had the best kick-ass 20-mile run today, and I just got this deal with a sponsor and all hmm. that, I'll get very polite, you know, congratulations, and people are happy for me. But, the, you know, the response will be three times as much if I say it's a struggle today. And, and I, I love the old saying that we're only as sick as our secrets. And I, most of the time, if you share that stuff that's really going on, you'll find a lot more people relate to that part of your life than, than to the good things. Yeah, Struggle so, unites us, huh? Well, vulnerability, right? The ability yeah. to have to be vulnerable. And, um, you know, I think uh, Eric and I have been very intimately involved with the veteran space when we started the No Barriers Warriors program a number of years ago. And so obviously what comes hand in hand with a lot of the veterans that we work with is is substance abuse and resolving addiction issues and we obviously, just like you, think that uh, the outdoors is the perfect theater to be able to uh, to be able to allow people to grow from that. Um, and I, I feel like your vulnerability and you showing your side uh, and asking for help, even this far into your sobriety, uh, that just shows what kind of character you have. And I, 
I feel like our demographic, the population that we work with, um, would really benefit from hearing even more about that. The, the willingness to, to expose your scars and admit the fact that, you know, from the Buddhist perspective, that life is suffering and that when we honor that and we show that, that uh, it allows for growth and that connection for community. Like you just said, you feel it, you see it, right? Do you have anything else to add to any of that? Yeah, I mean, you you said it so well right there, and I, I I've got a lot of friends, of course, in the uh, in the service community, military ser- community, and you know, I used to adventure race with a lot of those guys, and I would make a joke that that like I've got you know two Navy SEALs and an Army Ranger on my team, and if they didn't have me, they would all just drive themselves into the ground because there's a lot of pride and there's guilt associated with showing any weakness whatsoever and so it's really ingrained and it's it's hard to get away from that so i'd be the guy on the adventure race team going hey somebody carry my pack please (laughs) you know because i'm having a hard time and you know what you find is in any community if you will raise your hand and say hey i could use some help here for a minute you know or for longer than that it it goes a long way and i i we all know the statistics of these guys coming and girls coming back from service and how, how many lives are lost to suicide and to addiction. And it's, on, it's inexcusable that, that somehow there's not a better system in place to, um, to get help for these folks. And, and look, though, to be fair, it's not a secret anymore, man. You can't get out of the service and not know that there is help available. Like you've got to be willing to open yourself up and say, I'm hurting or I've got a, you know, I'm struggling right now. Hmm. How did you work through your addiction? I mean, I've heard you talk about the fact that you quit like hundreds of times. You're an expert at that. How did you, <laughs> you I guess I, I was going to say conquer it, but you don't really conquer it. I imagine just you learn to, as you said, work through it and move you know past you conquer it. it on a daily basis. And I look, man, I would I don't want to be presumptuous. You and I have never really talked about you know how you lost your sight and so forth. But but the the fact of the matter is, you know, <laughs> any of the any challenge like that, if you think about this, like oh my god, this is for the rest of my life. Yeah, that is so overwhelming. And it truly is that idea of focusing on, you know, the moment that you're in and the day that you're living and try not to project that further in the future. And when I finally stopped, it was a couple months after my first son was born. And, you know, to be honest, I thought he was going to save me. Like, I had tried everything to quit, nothing had stuck, and and I just thought his mere presence on the planet was going to make me stop drinking and using, because surely I could stay sober for him. And a couple months later, there I am sitting on the ground outside a dumpy motel in Wichita, Kansas, watching the police search my car, and it's got bullet holes in it from somebody trying to shoot me, and the cop finds a crack pipe under the seat, and you know, instead of thinking, oh my God, I'm in serious trouble. All I can think is, so that's where that was. (laughs) And (laughs) like, you know, it's just that crazy, sick thinking. 
And I realized in that moment, after being awake for six days and all the just crap I'd been through, it was like the clearest thought ever. It's like, nobody's coming to save you. Like, mm -hmm. your son can't save you. You know, if you're not willing to save yourself and to take the steps that you know how to take, then maybe you're not worth saving. And, you know, I went to a meeting that night and it was the first, I've been to meetings before, but that was the first one I ever really went to with like a curious mind and an open heart. And I got up the next morning and put on my running shoes. And I did those two things every single day for the next three years without missing a day. I ran and I went to a meeting and I just focused on the day I was in. And I, I, I came to a place where I realized, okay, I can do this. But it just had to be that one day at a time. It's cliche, but cliches are yeah. are there for a reason, man. They work. <laughs> wow. Were you aware of the chemical component of the addiction while you were addicted? And then by being aware of the serotonin, you know, receptors being full with cocaine, that you were gonna have to replace those receptors with something else in like that laser focus that you've now committed to even like that, that, that day you went to the AA meeting and you said, I'm going to put my running shoes on because I have to fill that void. Were you aware of that then? Or was it just sort of a, sort of an auspicious thing? Man, you just took me back to, to a, uh, you're a Tar Heel. So I just, I just found myself on Franklin street at a bar that used to be called Purdy's that probably was gone okay. by the time you were there, but uh, it became players, you know, up above the Raskeller on Franklin street and Chapel Hill. And I remember, like it was happened 10 minutes ago, being in a back office in that bar and snorting two lines of Coke, and they hit my brain like, uh, like a Klieg light, like a, like, a, like a hammer, and it just changed everything. And I spent the next 11 years of my life chasing that Jeez. first high because it never felt like that again in that moment. And, and, it, and it just, that's the crazy part about addiction. I mean, I say too, I don't care, climbing, running a marathon, falling in love, having a job, you know, first experiences are super powerful chemically. And we want to experience those over and over, I think. And, and it's, it's very difficult to do something we clearly can't do it for the first time again, but I did know that I needed to replace it. Like I watched people in sobriety go to AA meetings and that's all they did. And I knew that that wasn't enough for me. I needed a physical outlet. Hmm. And look, I freely admit too, I, I ran in those early years to punish myself. Hmm. I ran every single time I ran, I pretty much ran till I was going to throw up until I couldn't go another step. Like I, I was doing a combination of, you know, self-flagellation and, you know, and sure, I got the side benefit of actually being in really good shape. <laughs> but, but, you know, I wanted to be so exhausted when my head hit the pillow at night that the thought of a beer or anything else just wasn't even, I was too tired to go to the refrigerator. <laughs> huh. And over time though, running becomes more positive, right? Because I think that's so fascinating that you talk about this idea that you can't maybe kill addiction. You have to 
translate it into that energy into like Jeff, you were talking about into something bigger, something that gives you more purpose and meaning. Uh, you, and that's, you, that's a, that's, that's a wild process. It's, it's artful. Yeah. Well, you have to, you have to channel it. You have to channel the, I think the frustration, the, um, and look, I admit there's ego mixed into it too. Sure. The, the one thing I never wanted to be was normal. I knew that like way early on. I just, I didn't feel normal and, and people who wanted a normal life, I just didn't even get it. And so the moment like marathon running became like super mainstream, <laughs> like I tell somebody I'm running the Boston marathon <laughs> five years ago and they're like, yeah, my grandmother just did her 14th <laughs> in a row. And, and like uh, total kudos to that. I'm, I'm, I love the running boom in this country and I love the people that do it. But, you know, I knew for me, I wanted to find something that was maybe a little more off the grid. And so it drove me to, more extreme things. And I freely admit, I liked early on that feeling of telling somebody I was going to run a hundred miles or, I mean, Eric, I don't know, you know, I would guess that there was some satisfaction when you told somebody, Hey, I'm getting ready to go climb Everest. Like there's, yeah. there's purpose and all of that, but there's also like, you know, some like, yeah, I'm getting ready to do something that, you know, most people can't do. Yeah. For sure. I mean, like I used to kind of avoid that. And now I'm getting older and I totally accept the fact that there's ego in that decision, of course, which is a good thing to channel that ego into something big and cool. Because ego I, exists and we can't, we can't hide it. No. It has to. And we have to embrace it and allow it to be a positive fuel, right? Which is, I think, what you continue to do all these decades uh, through sobriety. Well, you can't possibly help to help. You, you can't hope to help other people if you're not helping yourself. I think too often we deflect and we almost embarrassingly say that we're going to go run a marathon for this cause or we're going to go this thing for this cause. Mm -hmm. And look, I do the same thing. You know, I'm the I'm lucky enough to be the co-founder of, you know, H2O Africa, which today is water.org. It's the world's biggest clean water nonprofit. And I take great pride in that. But I'm no, like, philanthropist. I I just ran, you know, I ran across the Sahara Desert years ago. Yep. And I got lucky to have Matt Damon as a partner. And, uh, you know, and thanks to that, we were able to build it into something. But I, people always ask me, so you ran across the desert to bring attention to clean water. I'm like, no. <laughs> I ran across the desert because I wanted to see if I was capable of doing it. And then I got the side benefit of doing what I'm passionate about and attach something selfless to it and accomplish two goals by doing the same thing. It's like the ability to run across the Sahara and have that personal summit somehow connects you and enables you in a way to like move beyond that and, and now think a little more expansively. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned being older a minute ago. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll be 57 during this Africa expedition. I'll be on Kilimanjaro, actually. I'll turn 57. And I I have definitely mellowed in the sense that, you know, I even call myself a cultural explorer these days. You know, I don't, 
my my purpose in life is to experience as many cultures as many places as i possibly can and you know you know i am a uh, a big believer in the need for environmental policy changes out there and i think we're heading the wrong direction but i'm not a you know probably the best lesson i learned in sobriety is a, a an old adage about attraction rather than promotion and what that means is just simply if you're living your life in a certain way rather than just talking about it all the time you know people will emulate you or if they're interested they will follow your lead you don't have to talk about it but you do have to go out there and do it yeah. So it's it's I'm more interested in just going out there and doing things. And you know what? The right people will be attracted to it and and hopefully will join me in trying to make some changes out there. And that's how like an influencer like Matt Damon says, OK, that's cool. What this guy's doing is cool. I want to be connected with that. Somebody asked me the other day, I went to this this um, this function and I got a question from the audience. I was talking about running, you know, 2000 miles across you know Africa coming up. And he the guy said, how can you physically do that? Like, how is that even physically possible? And I actually said, it's, it's, it's not physically possible. It's only mentally possible, mm. you know? And I think there's going to be thing. some pain. Totally. I want there to be, why would I be mm. interested in doing it if there wasn't going to be? Well, I, I've got to ask you this question. You talked about the self-flagellation, you know, back, back in the day. And do you feel like this is, kind of the the ultimate uh the ultimate test with that just to see what you and your body and your mind can do and that you're in a perhaps in a way still maybe are you pay, do you feel like you're paying penance for those those early years those 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 lost years dude that absolutely still lives inside me you know that <laughs> insecurity and that that feeling of not being good enough i mean look mm -hmm. i'm I'm well-connected in a recovery community. I have great friends that if I have some uh, depressing feelings or whatever, I talk to them about it because I know that's the best thing to do. But I'm, you know, I don't expect to wake up one day and magically that part of me is going to be gone. Mm -hmm. But, and I would even answer it this way, early on in my sobriety during those years when I was running every day so hard, like somebody said, like, you just switched addictions. And like mm -hmm. they said it as an insult, like they were actually mm -hmm. like pointing out a flaw in me. And, you know, as a as an addict and a sensitive person, I have I, of course, told them to, you know, F off. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. It took me a while to understand, you know, addiction, if you know any and, you know, you both know plenty about addiction, whether you are an addict, what you you have a family member who's an addict You've got like family members, friends, people, you know, you can't escape it in this day and age. Like, you know, somebody or you are somebody. Addiction is all about hiding. It's about having no feelings, being invisible. And, and if you have a feeling, if I had a feeling, I drank it away or drugged it away. And I don't know why I just did. I was afraid of the feelings and where they would take me and that I wasn't worthy Running, sure, I may run addictively in a way, but it, there is no hiding in, in running. I feel everything all the time. I get the chance, in fact, to be fully present, to feel, 
the pain and suffering or whatever might be going on or just the illumination of sweating and being out there. I mean, that's a gift to be able to feel those things. So it couldn't be more the exact opposite of what addiction, like drug addiction is. And and I can always find my car at the end of a long run. And that was not the truth after <laughs> a binge. So. <laughs> so that is so fascinating. That's like the opposite, as you're saying. That's like living fully, you know, feeling everything, taking yeah, it all well, in. Eric, when you're on mountains, like, is there ever a time when you're more focused or more present than when you're like on uh, the edge of a mountain and you know you're in that space, that special space? I mean, it, it, there's nothing better. Yeah. No, I mean, I admit fully that like my biggest fear when I was a kid was being boxed in by people, by myself, by my own thoughts and just like living inside this box is prison and you know breaking out yeah. and living in the mountains that's definitely a part of that living experience for me so the way you described it there um sort of empathizing in a deep way with that well look there's another thing too that i i think jeff to your question i i just thought i was, thought I was writing about this the other day <laughs> this is a you know i'm oversharing but like i i'm afraid sometimes that i I'm addicted still to that, that scary feeling I used to get when I would drive to the worst neighborhood in town to buy drugs. Like there was something incredibly edgy and powerful and like the driving through and the danger. Like I thought when I got sober, like I'm like, I'm, I just assumed my life was going to be boring after that. Like, that's it. I'm, I'm not really going to have that feeling anymore. And I do still crave it. You know, mm. I like, I like the feeling of knowing I'm going to go take a calculated risk and do something that excites me. And I, you know, and I'm not ashamed of that. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a, we don't get a second chance at this. And I want to go after doing exciting, interesting things and experience all I can. Hmm. I love hey, that. Since, since most people are probably pretty fascinated with how you're going to approach this 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 project, it just seems just the logistics of uh, seem seem overwhelming. Can you just give us a thirty thousand foot view of how you're going to pull off the continents? What maybe like the time window is for you, and what you expect uh, the, to take for each of the continents? The way it's going to look is this Africa one is going to take me a month to go lowest to highest. South America will be in January. Australia will be in March. Um, Europe uh, and Elbrus will be in April. <laughs> then come the truly daunting ones. Um, North America, of course, is Badwater and Death Valley all the way up to Alaska and Denali. <sighs> Dog, man. And that one's over 4,000 miles, so it's a long way to go to get there. Um, Denali is the only truly big mountain I've, I've ever climbed before. I've, I've done some volcanoes in Ecuador and some other things, but you know, this, I freely admit this will be a bit of a learning experience along the way, but then comes Antarctica, which again, I freely admit, uh, the lowest place in Antarctica is over 2000 miles away from the highest. And it's, 
no one in history has ever gone that far on Antarctica, and it's certainly unlikely that I'm magically become going to become the greatest like polar <laughs> explorer of all time. <laughs> so I'm working on a uh, I'm working on a workaround with that one. That's actually going to involve trying to do a free dive of at least 50 meters because 50 meters is the lowest land. 50 meters below sea level is the lowest land elevation in Antarctica and it's 2000 miles away. But if I just go to the coast, if I could do a free dive of 50 meters, which is way beyond my skill level right now, especially in that water, um, what the? <laughs> then I would, you know, I would then I would at least then claim with the caveat I didn't start on the lowest land elevation, but I would at least say that I gave it my best shot. And then of course Dead Sea to Everest will will be twenty twenty one. So I'll literally start January the first at the Dead Sea. And as we all know, there's a there's a summit window on Everest, and my goal would be to get there in time and not if I had had to, let me tell you this, if I'd had to climb Everest at the end of running across the Sahara Desert, I would be very frozen on that mountain right now <laughs> because uh, my body was a disaster. So the other thing I have to figure out is how to show up at these mountains at the end of these expeditions, not totally trashed. Yep. Yeah, okay. So yeah. How are you going to do that? Like what's the, well, I mean, I just know, got five blisters on my feet just popped up <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> I mean, good God, man. But, you know, I, I think that it is about, you know, my age does actually help me be less ego-driven. And therefore, you know, I'm not afraid to stop and fix those blisters or, you know, or slow it down. Yeah. I've been plant-based for a lot of years as an, as an eater, nutritionally. Um, I do take really good care of myself. I've in the last, I'd say, 10 years of my life, I've really, really prioritized sleep and hydration. I give those two things equal billing at the very top of my list. And for many, many years before that, you know, physical exertion was dominant. And, and I would, I don't care if I had two hours of sleep, if I had planned to run 20 miles that day, I was going to go run and just pound myself into the ground and I know now how counterproductive that is to actually being successful. The, the hardest thing to do, and, and again, I'm sure, Eric, you can relate to this. The hardest thing to do is to show up at the beginning of an expedition healthy. Yeah, yeah. You know, because of stress and just you're tired and you're, you know, you're just worn out from planning. Yeah, and don't packing. start injured or sick. <laughs> exactly. I've learned that lesson. Yeah. Well, Best of luck to you. I mean, that's exciting. And it uh, sounds like you're really prepared. You got a plan. It's exciting. Uh, and uh, and you're definitely going to uh, be a no barriers pioneer. Uh, and you already have been a pioneer with all the amazing stuff you've done running across the Amazon and the Sahara. Really cool. So we're honored to have you on the podcast. Well, truly honored to be here. And, and I mean, you guys are rock stars and it's a... Um... You know, it's a wonderful thing you're doing because people just need to understand that that it's not this stuff isn't that hard. You just got to get started. I tell people all the time, you know, they're like, how do you plan this? I'm like, the first thing you do is you go to your like, go to your county library and, and get a map like one of those things made out of paper. 
you know, not, not on your phone and, and get a map of your county and like figure out how you're going to go 50 miles across your county on foot or on a bike or, and don't always just show up to something that has been planned for you, you know, actually go through the steps of planning something for yourself and go out there and, you know, and make it happen. And, you know, you guys are doing the same thing. And, and I think that if there's enough of our voices out there to encourage folks to never stop exploring, then, you know, the world will be better for it. For sure. Well, Charlie, I applaud your, your ability to have, to have a big goal and a big dream. And then, and then honestly, because Eric and I have spent a lot of time in the Himalayas suffering on mountains, uh, I applaud your ability to be willing to suffer because, um, you know, you know, it's coming and, uh, you know what you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for and you're still going. It sounds like with a, with a, you know, ear to ear grin, just waiting to take <laughs> it on and see what it, see what it goes because there's that old metaphor, you know, that the, the skilled sailor, um, you know, has to have the, the, the tumultuous seas and the big storms to be able to get strong. So you surely are in a, an illustration of that. So we're honored to have you. And where can people find out and follow you as you go on this journey? Is there, do you have a dedicated website or what's that like? I do. You know, and I, I made some some decisions this time to uh, keep it on my own website. So it's as simple as it can be. It's just charlieingle.com. Okay. And all the links to social media are there. So if somebody likes uh, one platform over another, They'll find the link there and uh, I'll be sending out blogs and blasts to people so you can sign up on the website to actually follow along. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that we can get out a lot of information. T-Mobile is one of my sponsors and, and uh, I'm going there fully armed with being able to get out some information. <laughs> well, that's going to be fun to watch. Thanks, yep. Charlie. So Jeff, um, that was a, I mean, there's a lot to process, to be honest with you. I could have talked to Charlie for days, and I hope that I can sometime. I mean, that guy sort of embraces everything that I love about a character in life. You know, I love, I love how he uh, he went to this, these dark canyons and knew he was there, and he was savvy enough to understand where he was and be uh just sort of uh felt like he could he could dig out of it at any moment when in fact he probably couldn't and and then hearing the story about him finding clarity uh through a few fortuitous or i guess ugly events but um that that showed him that what was going to he was going to be required to recalibrate how he got off basically how he got high and uh and when I think about the demographic that you and I have worked with, with our Warriors program, there, we've had so many first-person encounters with uh, really remarkable men and women that uh, were, I guess, afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah. And then when I saw some of them become vulnerable, that's when the real transformation happened. And I think Charlie really embodies that. And I just, I hope that our, I hope that this, this particular podcast can get out to as much of our community as possible. It's one of the best ones we've had. Charlie is just a, uh, a wonderful representation of, of channeling, right? Yeah. And of, of finding purpose and allowing uh, that, that, that fire and soul within you to be repurposed into something that's positive. So 
I'm really grateful for him. And I am stoked to watch that man suffer, man, because <laughs> he is going, he is going for it, man. I mean, that is just listening to him recount what he's going to go do is just a mind bender. You're going to get blisters just watching him. Oh my God. As gosh. you said. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool. He's really insightful. And I love the, the honesty. To me, the honesty is so cool, way beyond just like any kind of cliche or anything. Such tremendous honesty. And I liked what he said about, you know, his, his kid wasn't going to save him. He had to save himself. Mm-hmm. And that changed two things. He went into the AA meetings and he started running. And, you know, we talk about transformation all the time. And what does that mean? It's like one of these lofty words, but it really just... He changed, I'm sure he changed more than that, but he changed two things, right? And he went in with an open heart and vulnerable, as you mentioned, and that led to these purposeful things. And that's the transformation. And he didn't kill the addiction. He he mm. channeled that energy into something else. Now, I'm not, we need to, you know, make sure we tell our community, like, you don't have to go out and run from the Dead Sea no. to the top of Everest, but... You do have to channel that addiction, that trauma into something positive. Maybe it's, you know, going to church or, uh, you know, playing gin rummy or, you know what I mean, online. I, I don't know, something more positive that's more fulfilling, that's more sustainable. Because, you know, maybe you, maybe you don't kill that energy, but you you translate it into something bigger, hopefully something with more purpose. Maybe it's a, it doesn't even have to be physical. Maybe it's just joining and volunteering in some capacity where you really feel fulfilled in that way that fills your soul with something better and healthier. Right. So I how find often, that super great. How often do you and I see it within the community where people are uh, sort of lost with their purpose? I'm talking not just the Warriors community, but the No Bears community in general. Lost with purpose, have no dharma, have no focus on purpose. And then they come to a summit or they do a what's your Everest or they find that there is a venue outdoors and there's a community and all of a sudden that purpose gets defined. And it may have been a, uh, it may have been um, sort of uh, angled in the wrong direction for a while and then it just needs to be recalibrated. Take that purpose in a positive way. Charlie's, uh, God, what a poster child for purpose that guy is, man. Amazing. <laughs> All right, well, with that, thanks everyone. <laughs> thanks for joining the podcast, No Barriers. See you later. Thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast. We know that you have a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and so we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, which is called Guidance. The production team behind this podcast includes producers Diedrich Jonk and Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Laura Baldwin and Jamie Donnelly. Thanks to all you amazing people for the great work you do. And soon they will be fighting.